I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed. We are so pleased to be with you again. This is episode 10 of season two. And uh, yes, yeah, it's a uh, hashtag so exciting, right? <laughs> so exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited today. <laughs> Maybe it's because we're speaking to a friend of yours today, right? Absolutely. I mean, well, I think I'm pretty excited on every episode, but, you know, particularly today. Um, I, I've just been excited about this season. You know, I really... I'm really, really enjoying it, <laughs> even if I'm saying so myself. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to quite a few academics. I absolutely love talking to Ali, you know, about poetry. I love talking to Gemma uh, last week about her way of storytelling. I think our resilience episode was pretty exciting as well. It's got quite a lot of traction on Twitter. Yeah, and you said excited like six times so far, so it's going to be <laughs> some episode. <laughs> Um, Are you counting uh, the, the number of times I'm saying excited? Just like men- mentally making a note. But um, <laughs> yeah, the resilience episode is great. And we got to hear from lots of different voices. And I think discuss some really challenging dilemmas in our field to do with that yeah. concept. Yeah, absolutely. I really hope it kind of started some sort of discussion um, because I think it's, you know, as we discussed, this is the discussion we need because we're all just so kind of bitter about resilience but we don't really talk about it so hopefully um you know if you guys feel strongly about things that were said on the episode that were not said just let us know i don't know if we're all bitter about resilience i'm not i don't feel bitter (laughs) i feel pretty bitter (laughs) uh despite having it in my job title not like not bitter bitter but just um I don't know, unsure and upset sometimes, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess when when it's used without any context or where you know that the usage is, can, can, could be potentially sort of damaging or obscuring of what's really going on in the situation, that's the problem, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, we maybe we'll pick it up again in season three, um, you know? Yeah, I that's... Don't know. That'd be cool, right? Every season we have a special on resilience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good idea. That's a good idea. Anyway, um, so today it's going to be really cool to think a bit more about um, the significance of the places that we live and how we uh, navigate that as we think more about risk. And I think we have the perfect person with us today to discuss. Today with us we have Rohit Gyasu, and it's my absolute pleasure to have you with us because you're not just somebody I know and to work with, but you're a really good friend. So, Rohit is a conservation architect and an expert in disaster risk management. Um, he's also a chair, UNESCO chair at the Institute of Disaster Mitigation of Urban Cultural Heritage at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto in Japan. Um, and he's really well known around the world for his passion for disaster risk management of cultural heritage. I guess this is the area where we know you best from. So welcome. Yeah, welcome, Roy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ksenia. Thank you, Jason. So, Rohit, um, you know, you're working on lots of amazing things. And as I already said, first and foremost, we know you for disaster risk management of cultural heritage. But whilst 
you talk about cultural heritage and I've seen you so many times presenting and, you know, I'm very familiar with your work. You always encourage everyone to think not just about cultural heritage per se, but about the place within which um, it is contained. So why is the sense of place and is the purpose of place so important to you? Well, uh, actually, if, uh, the very reason why I always emphasize uh, on place is because I have seen the, uh, uh, the uh, what I would say as uh, the futility of looking at heritage as just monuments or buildings or isolated uh, you know icons uh, which actually uh, have uh, which are perceived as beautiful as uh, you know touristy but without really connecting to the people who are real uh, holders or who are real bearers of this heritage so uh, for me uh, heritage makes sense only when it is connected to the place to which it belongs and when I say the place to which it belongs I'm talking about uh, the people who are inhabiting the place I'm talking about um, the the connections to the local geography local natural resources climate I mean it is a, a a collective understanding of multiple interrelationships that have evolved over time uh, which for me gives a sense to something um, as heritage uh, as of significance because it has endured for so long because it has sustained itself for so long and that's why for me heritage is nothing else but a place that has uh, that that demonstrates how uh, continuity and evolution uh, is uh, is a sense of life per se. Oh wow! But I guess many would disagree with that, right? Because um, many of the uh, evaluations of cultural heritage are just about a particular object. Yeah, in fact, uh, I would say that this is a reaction to the way I got my education in heritage conservation. Uh, way back, uh, you know, in 90s, because at that time, uh, the whole emphasis was on protecting these, preserving these, because these are, uh, you know, significant for their architectural value. And, you know, I would always uh, question, like, whose value are we talking about? I mean, mm -hmm. are we talking about values of those experts who really look at it in, in their own, you know, vocabulary, which has kind of meaning for them, but maybe no meaning for the people to where uh, to whom this belongs, right? And also, I was very intrigued from the beginning that, you know, we are talking about, why are we not talking about a simple heritage, which has probably more meaning for people, but maybe less meaning for experts, you know. So, uh, we, we may look at some place and we say, well, what is so beautiful about it? It is nothing, mm. you know, there is just a small uh, a kind of, uh, let's say, a courtyard or a, 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 a tree and some pieces of uh, stones or, you know, even a small structure. Why do we think it is important? But, uh, but when we talk to the people who live there, who, who are attached to that place, probably that place has more significance to them than to a, you know, a big monument or, or a big piece of, uh, you know, archaeological site, which might have a very high historic value, but maybe has very little meaning for the people. It's really interesting to, to uh, hear you talk about the fact that places have, have a different meaning for the people that actually live there as opposed to the experts. And connecting to like our season, the season two of our podcast, 
where we're talking about stories and narratives and how we frame different issues. This issue of of place is really interesting because it's perceived differently. And I think I think that's about the stories that we tell and about how we frame it, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I also feel that uh, there are so many untold stories about heritage because the predominant narrative is expert driven. And the very, uh, the the way we can start to appreciate what is real heritage is by bringing forward these narratives. And I, I just want to give you one example. Uh, we all know about uh, Bamiyan Buddhas, no? I mean, they were, uh, uh, they were kind of uh, destroyed uh, when the militants kind of uh, attacked, uh, even had, had exploded, uh, made an explosion. And, you know, the whole international uh, kind of outcry was, against the loss of this uh, very important uh, monument, a piece of history, right? Uh, But nobody really talked about the importance these Buddhas had uh, for the local people. For them, they were not like Buddhas. In fact, they called them by another name. And for them, uh, it was not, uh, you know, as Buddhist, as you would say, but they had very important significance as, as part of the their landscape as part of uh, something that they had uh, been grown they had grown up with and and for them the understanding of buddhas was not as buddhas but as something which was very much connected to their uh, landscape to their day-to-day life so uh, so i think uh, there are many many such stories which bring forward this uh, you know that there are these narratives which we don't simply understand because we uh, don't uh, go and speak with people uh, who are connected to that uh, piece of heritage uh, and and that actually um, you know uh, creates lots of issues i mean i can tell you another story because uh, i was uh, working in lhasa in in tibet and uh, we were going around visiting Potala Palace. Uh, we visited many other sites there. And, and you know, when we were in one of those uh, small neighborhoods and, uh, you know, we, 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 we actually uh, talked to the people living there. And for them, uh, of course, Potala Palace and uh, the monastery was very important. But for the neighborhood, uh, there was a sp- small area very near where they used to live, uh, which uh, was along the hill slope, and and there they would just go and uh, you know uh, put pieces of stones and make a wish, and for them that place, which actually was nothing but just a place, where they had a kind of a spiritual, they had a spiritual connection to that place, for no real uh, you know. Uh, explicit reason but that is where they kind of uh, found themselves anchored to you know and they would go there they would be you know what they had a ritual of putting one piece of stone over the other and making a wish and this is what they have been doing for generations so you know sometimes these places are very ordinary for outsiders for them uh, it, it will have no meaning uh, unless they really understand how these places are attached or associated uh, with with communities with uh, with uh, people why do you think that we don't often hear those stories or encounter those narratives Rohit? well i think the i would say one of the main reasons is that uh, our education system has somehow made us very um, 
how to say, uh, I think somehow we develop this understanding that we know it all from the kind of uh, tools and the you know, you know the kind of things that we learn. Uh, we we know so if we use those tools and if we use that knowledge we will know it all but we don't have the ability and i would say uh, we don't develop soft skills to really talk to people to understand what they believe in how they see things we don't have this uh, we don't try and speak to people so i think one of the reason is that uh, you know as architects engineers or whatever uh, profession we come from we have this ego right like that we know it all this is our knowledge you know mm -hmm. so that in a way really disconnects us from these narratives and these narratives are lost or not considered uh, in in many important decisions that are taken And I think um, when when we look at disasters and how we how what we focus on in disasters, it's often on individual elements. For instance, we focus on the buildings, or we focus on the infrastructure, or the people who are affected. Um, but you have always argued for a much more holistic approach um, when we think about places and space. And why do you argue for that? And and what do you think some of the reasons are that we fail to do it yeah i mean i always think that uh, you know by dividing uh, any place into different uh, you know elements or looking at different sectors in isolation uh, what we do is we fail to recognize the interconnections that exist between different elements and uh, whether we talk about infrastructure, whether we talk about shelter, whether we talk about uh, livelihoods, uh, they don't exist in isolation. They are all dependent on each other. And every, um, you know, uh, there are multiple associations with every, that every element has, whether these are, uh, you know, you may look at a piece of infrastructure, let's say a road or, uh, you know, a pathway, uh, it could be looked at just as a way of move movement, right, for transport or for mm. people, but it is also sometimes having another uh, meaning, let's say as a processional path, you know, for conducting some rituals for people for them it is not just a a road for moving people from one point to the other for them it for them it is a it is a sequence of experiential experience that they have you know while move they move from one point to the other and it is part of their uh, you know day day, day to, uh, daily being let's say so uh, and 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 when we look at shelter we think of shelter just as a house which people inhabit but it is not just a house that they inhabit it is also a place where they have uh, you know uh, which is connected to a lot of uh, social uh, activities which are connected to uh, maybe an economic uh, activity that they may be doing which might be connected to some stories uh, associated with the families or with so there are multiple uh, you know uh, meanings which we can only understand when we start to understand uh, the relationships uh, let's say uh, there is a tree now a tree can be looked at as just a 
one of the landscape element right but the teach but that same tree tree may be having other kind of associations for people uh, maybe it is uh, having a uh, it gives you a shade so somebody is taking shelter under the tree maybe that tree has a spiritual meaning for someone so there are these multiple meanings multiple relationships that we fail to recognize because we look at them very much in isolation and treat them as objects that have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And when we think about disaster risk reduction, this is precisely the problem because we look at the damage to each of these uh, so much disconnected with each other that we our approach is very uh, compartmentalized. And when we have that compartmentalized approach, in the long run, we fail to reduce vulnerability because we have not addressed or even build on the the capacity or the strength because we have failed to recognize uh, that uh, that these need to be addressed uh, in in a holistic way. I think we've spoken about some of these problems um, quite a bit in the past on the podcast when we talk about the need for researchers from different disciplines to work together because there's such a problem with individuals specializing on one aspect of disasters and um, not really understanding where others are coming from or the importance of other elements. And I think, yeah, you've, you've articulated really well why that's important when we, when we think about places. I, I would like to say one more thing. Uh, I think in the current, you know, neoliberal kind of paradigm we are living in, there's another issue because we have reduced everything to an object for consumption. Mm-hmm. And when we reduce everything to be an object for consumption, whether we talk about shelter, whether we talk about land, we fail to recognize that that shelter has is not just something that has uh, economic value, but it has other values. When we think about land, we forget that land is not just a commodity to be sold or purchased, but a land has many other you know, connections to the people, to people, right? Yeah. I mean, those could be uh, social connection or spiritual connections. And and many times land is not private. It is a collective thing for, for a group of people who, who actually use it traditionally in a collective manner and and is is a source of kind of uh, you know let's say in disaster situations it becomes for them uh, uh, an asset an asset that they they collectively share you know so i think we we miss out a lot on these aspects uh, when we think of all these elements just as commodities for consumption i guess another problem here is that it's very easy to look at elements because they're tangible, right? Whereas intangible values are impossible, they're impossible to record. They're kind of almost impossible to measure, right? And if we can't measure something, it means it doesn't exist. Exactly. Right, right. No, no, this is very true. And I think uh, there is a flip side to it, which I would also like to mention. You know, there has been a lot of talk uh, recently on intangible aspects. But, uh, you know, uh, the problem is like when we think about intangible, we disconnect it from tangible. I mean, no tangible Mm. exists without intangible and vice versa. So what is important is not to think of intangible also as uh, in isolation. You know, sometimes I, I say that sometimes they look at intangible in a tangible way which doesn't make real real sense you know what is really important is to see that 
tangible and intangibles are very much interconnected and and when we even think about disaster risk reduction uh, we have to think about uh, both the tangible and the intangible and their interconnections And so the forefront of all the storytelling and placemaking, we have people, right? But of course, people have different stories. So I think we had this discussion with you before, particularly in a conflict situation, where there are two sides to every story about every place. So how do we treat those? What do we do with that storytelling? Yes, so uh, that's uh, that's something which is uh, I'm I've been thinking a lot about recently because uh, you know in conflict situation when we think about let's say uh, heritage uh, we think about uh, you know let's say one element and we elevate it as something uh, that we need to restore or recover because that will build help in build building peace and reconciliation among communities uh, by elevating something in an objectified manner and trying to uh, you know give it that kind of a higher level status uh, actually sometimes works in a counter to what we think it will do it creates more conflicts because we are not trying to uh, actually address uh, a place in a holistic way where heritage is connected to different sections of communities and when we talk about communities it is not just one community there are multiple uh, communities existing within so called one community there are people who are minor there there are minorities there are uh, you know there are sections of communities who are more marginalized sometimes and their heritage does not get recognized because we we try to elevate uh, you know uh, one or two elements and say well if we reconstruct them or rec uh, you know we are going to kind of bring back the identity and in that process of creating you know kind of uh, uh, these identities recreating re re identities through uh, uh, external interventions we in fact exaggerate or increase the the conflicts among communities uh, so so what i'm what i would like to emphasize is that when we deal with conflict situations it is even more important that we have this place based approach we try to recognize that communities have multiple stories and it is not good to have one story kind of uh, you know be elevated or be made more predominant uh, and and then in that process you actually uh, take away lot of the other uh, stories which may not be so um, visible or maybe not so not so known but they are equally important for uh, you know these uh, other sections of communities who are maybe not so uh, uh, powerful uh, and 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 so uh, we have to be very very careful how we intervene in con for post conflict recovery how we really look at uh, place uh, in totality recognizing that there are uh, multiple um, associations that there are multiple values that there are multiple perspectives uh, and uh, sometimes 
those perspectives and values of weak and marginalized are not given that much importance because the narrative of the powerful takes over the other narratives so these situations we have found in many many cases and one of the case which i think i i should not be really telling right now uh, <laughs> uh i'm facing it <laughs> <You> myself <will. laughs> in that project <laughs> uh, because this is uh, this is you know even when we talk about international organizations who intervene in post conflict mm. recovery uh, they come with uh, you know the they are supported by international uh, you know donors right so from and they could uh, also carry their own agenda so it's very hard especially in a conflict situation uh, when you intervene uh, how would you then address uh, you know all these different perspectives i think you know after i've kind of started working with you um, it's only then that i realized how political cultural heritage is <laughs> before it was just you know just a kind of pretty thing to look at and you know consider and reminisce about <laughs> but yeah, yeah you've you've ruined it all for <laughs> no. me right <laughs> <laughs> no, not only that i mean i also uh, sometimes my own uh, uh, you know my own colleagues from heritage field i have a little uh, you know a kind of argument with them because i always feel that as heritage uh, professionals you know we tend to romanticize sometimes uh you know heritage is always evolving heritage is always changing there is no static heritage and i think we have to recognize that some of the elements of heritage uh, may not have the value anymore you know so we have to uh, we, we can't just carry on everything and uh, keep on classifying it as heritage some of it might not be acceptable you know in changing societies in cha- with uh, so especially in disaster situations i feel that some of those so called uh, uh, you know traditions or or values that we are carrying from our past probably make makes us more vulnerable so maybe those don't need to stay you know so we have to have a little balanced view when we think about heritage and even when we think about traditional knowledge that uh, people have kind of uh, developed over time uh, some of it might be relevant some of it might have transformed some of it might have to evolve further or some of it might have to be kind of left because it doesn't it's no longer viable so i think we have to have that kind of a very uh, i mean we have to have a thinking of uh, and not to we we should not be really uh, this have have this romantic vision of heritage i was uh, really interested to hear you talk about power and the issue of dominant narratives and how the powerful can can use that to further oppress people um and i i just i think in in your area surely there's a lot of stories and narratives that are quite colonial really and so is there is there a big need to decolonize uh the stories that you tell in cultural heritage of course absolutely and uh, you know uh and i would say that a lot of these stories are have not been when we when we read history when we read about which kung ruled when and what that king or queen did mm. i mean we have to re- realize that all those stories and all those narratives are written 
sometimes by our colonial masters you know in the past and we continue to just follow the same stories and and those narratives are very much uh, colored uh, by uh, by their perceptions and by their uh, you know by their let's say by their agenda you know at that time mm-hmm. when these were kind of written uh, but i would also argue that there is a there is another side to it you know as a reaction to that we are also getting these kind of nationalistic narratives you know these yeah. narratives which are then again going the completely the other end of the spectrum where you are uh, actually creating these so called national constructs you know the mm. stories that you want to just counter to say that no uh, we have our own kind of uh, you know narrative which is uh, totally different than what was there before and this is what gives us identity as a nation as a as a society so i think uh, both sides have their uh, you know uh, are not to be accepted i feel we have to have a very balanced view and i think the more important part is any narrative cannot be constructed by uh by uh an outsider right. a narrative holds meaning only when it comes from uh from uh, very much within the society uh and we have to understand that there is no one narrative even when we talk of narratives within a society you will find that there will be multiple understanding of the same things right so so this kind of a storytelling has to also be done in a way that it doesn't seem like this is the only story this is mm-hmm. one of the story multiple stories and 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 it is a open book and the chapters may be may keep on adding to it telling different versions of the same story right uh, this is also uh, you know i also connected to many cultures where you know our uh, there were no written records uh, in the past i mean all these um, it traditions and uh, stories had passed on a, a through oral uh, you know uh, orally so so you know when we have in this kind of a oral transmission of uh, stories uh, will not be uh, cannot be seen uh, you will see that there is always a kind of a element that has evolved in this narrative right so uh, so th- it is not so easy you you know what i mean to say is that it is not always this narrative versus that narrative whether we think about a narrative created by colonial masters whether by the nations uh, whether by different parts of society there are going to be multiple narratives and we have to make sure that all these multiple narratives are out there so that we don't try to just uh, you know reduce everything to one predominant narrative So, Rohit, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been um, fascinating talking to you about the importance of place and about your work and hearing some um, of your stories and experiences has just been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure, uh, Ksenia and Jason, to speak with you and uh, share my views. I think you are doing a great job. 
Thanks, Roy. Is there anywhere that uh, listeners can go if they want to find out more about your recent work? A lot of my writings are actually posted on the prevention web. So if they go there, there is actually a section on cultural heritage. And within that section, uh, there are many papers and uh, publications that can be downloaded. So probably that's the place they can find something interesting. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Rohit Jigyasu on Disasters Deconstructed Podcasts.